This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce brands, helping merchants unlock revenue and deliver exceptional customer service. This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences, and drive conversions. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 114 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee, and today I spoke with Joe Enns, the CEO of High Key, on a mission to drive sugar out of snacks and remove over 10 million pounds of sugar from the American diet by 2025. High Key is the fastest growing, better for you cookie brand in the US available across grocery, mass, and club. In this episode, Joe shares his journey from growing up in Toronto to joining General Mills right out of college and working there for over 20 years in several different roles and cities to meeting the founders of Haiki and becoming CEO just nine months after launch. He talks about his experiences leading a Fortune 200 company and now at an early stage startup, how to build trust with your team, why he uses the big plus one hiring strategy, and the difference between a growth versus a fixed mindset. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can follow us on Spotify or you can check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, Joe, thanks so much for joining the show today. I'm so excited to hear your story and becoming CEO of Highkey. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm uh, humbled to be here. I'm excited. Your story is unique. I'm going to try not to dive into it too early. So let's start real quick with a little background. Where are you from and what was it like growing up? So I'm from the suburbs of Toronto. Grew up a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, still a fanatic. You know, my folks, you know, they split pretty early. They split when I was seven. Uh, it was kind of one of the great divorces of, of my time. You know, a lot of my friends who went through divorces struggled. And in my case, my parents couldn't have done it better. Wow. What did they do? That was so great. That's uh, the first I've heard this. <laughs> so I lived with my mom and I spent weekends with my dad and um, and never did they say a disparaging word about each other. To this day, I have no idea why they broke up. I generally don't care. And it was just a very uh, well-managed, all about the kids divorce. What do you mean you don't care? Are you ever really curious? Like what happened? No, it's none of my business. It is none of my business. And that's, you know, and even I, as I have, a kid in the moment when that happened, you weren't like, what's going on here? What's going Were you too young? You think I, I was seven years old, um, maybe as a teenager, you know, there might've been an hour where I wondered, but it wasn't too, I mean, I, I it didn't, it didn't matter because 
you know, I had the best of both worlds. I, I had, you know, I always say I got the best of each of them. I have my mom's heart and my dad's head. So, so grew up in the suburbs of, of Toronto and um, very loving households. Education was important, but it wasn't part of our background. So neither parent finished high school, but both were very enterprising. So went to college in Canada and then started in the food business right out of college. Wow, that's amazing. And so what were you doing in the food business right out of college? So I was lucky enough to join General Mills uh, in Canada right out of the gates. And it was one of those rare circumstances where I found an industry that I had passion for right away and, um, and got plugged into an amazing uh, ecosystem that was all around rotating people around, giving them great experiences. And, and, uh, and so I was very fortunate at the age of 21 or 22 to kind of find my, uh, you know, find my spot. Yeah. I mean, you were there for like 20 some years. I mean, that's a really long career and uh, especially having started as like your first job out of college. I know it, but I always say I had probably 14 jobs in that 21 across three different countries. So seven, seven years in, I kind of got the itch and asked to move to the headquarters of Minneapolis, which is why I moved to the U.S. in late 22, early 20, uh, sorry, late 2002. Then another seven years kicked in and I started getting the itch, but that itch was different. That was an itch to leave big company and go build something. And so that kind of started my eventual journey to, to leaving. But problem was I kept getting these killer jobs. So they gave me great jobs along the way. My last one was to run Australasia out of Melbourne, which was just an amazing experience. But that I went to Melbourne knowing that I was going to leave big company and then go try to build something. And so that was, that was the, that was the eventual kind of leaping off point. At what point during your journey, did you kind of realize that's something that you would want to pursue, that you would want to be on that kind of early stage startup side of things? It it was, you know, it was when I probably, you know, I I became a director and then an officer. And I realized that the skill set to progress to the most senior ranks in a fortune 200 become less and less about running the business and building the business and more and more around managing, building, managing stakeholders, all really important skill sets, but I didn't get any oxygen from it. What I loved doing was building the brand, running the business. And so I always wondered, you know, how small could I go? In fact, my exit interview with the head of HR, the CHRO at General Mills, she kind of turned to me and she was still trying to figure out if there was a way to keep me on the bench. And she said, well, what would Joann's do if Joann's wasn't at General Mills? And I said, Jacqueline, I think I'm probably going to go see how small is small enough. And she kind of looked at me and I had a long relationship with her, you know, counted her as a friend, still do. And she looked at me and said, that sounds just about right. So, so they knew, I knew that that I initially, I, I eventually had to do this. So you, you said to her to see how small, small enough is type of thing. Like you wanted to see like how small of a business you could go. That would be enough to kind of satisfy you. Like what was the other side of that looking like for you? We, exactly. I wanted to test myself. I wanted to bet on myself a little bit and see, could I, could I build something from close to scratch? Now, as it turns out with the journey I'm on, I, I didn't create the spark. So I've never had that opportunity to create the spark, but I've been able to take the spark and turn it into a wildfire. And so that was, I always wondered whether I had that, that leadership muscle. 
Interesting. And so you're curious if you had this muscle to do that. I like how you say, take a spark and turn it into a wildfire. That's exactly what it is. I feel like in that, and maybe you're experiencing that now kind of in two years of being at high key. Do you feel like you're, you're in the wildfire now? Definitely so. In fact, we, I think we're in a, in the third phase of our journey. The first phase, our business partners, AJ and John, kind of cracked the code was, which was which was validate the proposition. Is there something here? And they did that online. They did that through Amazon. The second phase, which is where I came in, was validated at retail. Could you take what we achieved online to bricks and mortar? We did that through 2020 and early 2021, and then we're in the phase of just ignite, you know, you know, spread, spread the wildfire. And so we've been very fortunate to, to do that today. That's amazing. And so kind of switching back to, you know, your experience at General Mills, what are some key takeaways you have from that experience that has actually transferred and helped you in the earlier stages of building a business? Well, I'm lucky in that my my career, half of it is, you know, the bookends of my career are in small independent subsidiaries. So the Canadian division was the international division before General Mills got bigger. And then I ran the Australasia business kind of figuratively and literally an island on the other side of the world. So half of my career were in these, quote unquote, smaller enterprises where it was more depth, more breadth versus depth. And I think that's the difference between big company and, and smaller company, not necessarily even entrepreneurial is if you are, you wear many hats in small independent subsidiaries. And of course, in these roles, you wear all hats. And so I was lucky that I learned my early chops in an environment where I had to have breadth. And I closed my time in big company in the exact same situation. In fact, it was that experience that confirmed my instinct, which is, I'm better and more suited for that versus going laser deep on a single brand and managing a universe that is, you know, very, very narrow. Interesting. I'd love to hear maybe more about what you were talking about before when it is such a big company, you were talking about kind of managing, I guess, more of the leadership team and less of the daily kind of business operations, obviously. What are some other like more in detail for the people that have never been in that position um, that you can kind of help explain, especially to the startup entrepreneurs that maybe only know startup world? Yeah, here's what I say that that I want that community to love, which is what I'm obsessed with now and love, the ability to make a decision on informed intuition, and and say we're gonna we're going right today, and 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 actually turn right that day. I think we take for granted now that I've been in this universe for two or three years. You just sometimes take for granted that if you want to turn right in a large company, you, you first of all you you need to draw a map. And you got to put it in PowerPoint and that takes a little while and you need a bunch of data to support that map. And then you've got to bring probably a half dozen people to say, yeah, I buy into that map. And then you've got to go to their bosses and say, how does this map look? I don't think the color is right. I think we got to change the color of that map. And then you eventually get to a decision maker who says, I'll tell you what, let's turn 5% right first and see how that looks. We're months in at this point. Right. And so that's a different universe, right? Versus... You know, now we're, you know, we're, we're turning right today and it's exhilarating, thrilling and terrifying all in the same breath. It's um, and that's that's what I was hoping for on this journey. 
It's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm the I'm very much the startup person. I've never worked at like a very big company, and I don't think I ever could because I have to be able to just turn right if I want to turn right. right. <laughs> and so the hearing I've heard, obviously, they that you know that's kind of the reputation that big companies have is they're kind of slow movers, right? Because there's a lot of red tape, there's so many people, and it's interesting to hear the insider perspective of how long things can really, really take. And I don't say any of that in a disparaging manner. I'm extremely grateful for my experience. And I'll comment on what that what I've brought to this in a second on that end. But the, you always go to the why. Why is what I just described true? So if there, we're talking about massive hundred plus million dollar businesses, you know, billion dollar businesses. Then the idea of turning right could have a profound impact on a lot of stakeholders. And so there's just more people involved. The, the stakes are higher. Now, all of that said. There's nothing stopping a big company from doing what you and I are doing. There's a great book that I'm sure you know, Dr. Carol Dweck's Mindset, which talks about the distinction between growth mindset and the fixed mindset. We make every new employee read it because the essence of a growth mindset is one who looks at failure as progress. And, and that, you know, even though a lot, large companies will often say we want to celebrate failure, it's very hard to celebrate failure when you have career-defining moments that are either you know pluses or minuses. In our world, failure really is progress. And, and that's the distinction between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. There's nothing stopping big companies from adapting that mindset. It's just harder to do. You need a champion. You, you need a senior leader champion who's like, no, seriously, I'm fine that you failed today. In fact, I love that you did because here's why we're better for it. That's really easy to say. It's harder to do when there's a, a hundred people watching. Right. Stakes are definitely higher, especially if it's a public company. <laughs> For sure. Terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Terrifying. <laughs> totally different <laughs> level of terror. But, but, so but the irony is, Lee, it's not. Like we think it's, that's the other thing I tell my colleagues in, the, in my old world is you think it's terrifying and you think it's going to be bad. It's not. And, and if you really look at the successful leaders, they failed a ton of times. The ones who are really honest celebrate it. The ones who are not kind of hide it. But um, it's actually not as terrifying as it appears. But you get yourself kind of torn, you know, kind of tied up in a knots and, and you create this sense of I have to be successful every time. It's just not true. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And I, I want to read that book now that you mentioned. Oh, Dr. Dweck's work is so important for, in all facets of life as a parent, as a leader. Yeah, it's very important work and really well written. Amazing. Well, I just became a parent, so that'll be uh, about a year ago. So that's good that uh, that it helps in that department, too. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what were some of the, the key things? I think we we're talking about the, the takeaways that you took from General Mills into the startup world. Are there any key learnings or even times where you slipped up and learned a valuable lesson that now you take with you um, as you grow and build high key? Yeah, I think... You know, I heard a CEO tell me the other day, and I told him I was going to steal his expression because it's so good, which is big plus one. And this, this is his recruiting strategy, big plus one. I asked him, why is that? And he said, the strength of big plus one is if you only hire someone who's only done big, you, you, you get somebody who's usually pretty rigid and hasn't proven that they can go to you know, scrappy and agile and, and being comfortable with failure. When you get the plus one and they've been successful, or at least they've got a story to tell, 
they've been able to apply the big to the plus one. And I do think that's the merit of his counsel, which is, you know, what I've been lucky enough to do is to bring across some of the fundamentals that I learned over the course of my time. And again, unique to me, I was lucky enough to work in the smaller part of the company. So my fundamentals were a little bit more rooted to a scrappy environment. It's harder, I think, if you only grow up in the big headquarter ivory tower to make the switch. It's not impossible, but it is harder because your, your experience has usually been most of what I described earlier. Mine was a little different than that. But I do think the fundamentals that you get in some larger companies first, I think play a, they really serve you well, even in the very early stages. I, 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 started, I started a high key in month nine. Um, we were a post-revenue startup, but still early, early days. One of the first things that we did was create a pricing hierarchy. You know, what's our pricing structure by channel? And that is so corporate when I hear myself say it, but it's so important to know how you're going to price across channels before you are faced with that decision. It's very difficult to unwind that down the road. And, and Expo West, a lot of the brands that struggle you know, in that community are, is because they haven't thought through their pricing hierarchy. As one small example of what are some of the fundamentals that you can gain in the proverbial big? Interesting. I think a lot of listeners are like, what are they talking about? What's he just say about pricing hierarchy? <laughs> well, I mean, I'll break it down real simple, but not to yeah. make it about that. If, if, especially in my world, right, you have mass retailers, you have grocery, you've got the club channel, you've got Amazon, and they're all looking at each other. There is a way to price your hierarchy across those channels so that you don't frustrate one customer over the other. But you've got to be deliberate and you've got to be consistent. You have to map it out initially because it's hard to retrofit. It's possible, but it's hard. And so, again, just one small example of, of you know, just thinking through some of the fundamentals. So how did you discover Haiki? How did you connect with AJ and John, right? Those are the two guys that kind of started it. Yeah, exactly. So when I left Australia, my initial intention was to start a snack business that I discovered over there. Uh, it was a childhood pen pal friend of mine, uh, Petrina. We met when we were 10 years old. Our fathers knew each other. She lived in Australia and she would come to Canada to visit her father and we became lifelong friends. Well, I moved to Australia and I sent her a note on Facebook out of nowhere. I say, hey, do you still live in Australia? I'm moving here. He's like, oh my God, what are you doing? It's like, I'm going to come run a food company, General Mills. And she's like, well, I run a food company. And she had this gorgeous little snack business that she started. And she said, you've got to help me bring this to the U.S. And I said, OK, let me finish this General Mills run and let's see what happens. And um, so we were going to bring that business to to the U.S. It was it just was harder to do than we anticipated, mostly because of the supply chain. But on that journey, I met John Gibb. He was going to be our co-manufacturer. And um, and, you know, as things progressed in different directions, um, I caught wind of high key, probably, they were probably month six at that point, but I, I had seen something come across and I reached out to John. I was like, hey, is, is this that thing you were talking about? He's like, yeah, are you on the market? He's like, yeah, I'm on the market. He's like, call me right now. And so that, you know, I was lucky enough to find John through a, through a proper entrepreneurial effort I was going to do. And, um, and the rest is, the rest is history. Well, so they had, how far have they had, did they kind of take the business? 
was it launched on Amazon? Was that their was. initial strategy? So, so they launched in January of 2019 on Amazon. They had been working through different models and little businesses uh, up until then, but they launched in January of 2019, became the number one chocolate chip cookie on Amazon by like April or May. So very quickly, that's a testimony to AJ's skills and, and know-how and building Amazon businesses and a testimony to this incredible product that John had created. And so we started talking in July. So shortly thereafter, so point of validation accomplished, but AJ had built a bunch of different businesses on Amazon at that point. And this one, this one felt different to him. And so he decided to bring in a leader early, much earlier than I think anyone would otherwise speaks to his guts because he didn't know anything about retail, doesn't generally like building brands. He just likes starting them. And, uh, and so, so that's kind of how we, how we connected. That's pretty cool. There is a difference with the type of people who like to start a company, have an idea and they like to get the idea off the ground. And as soon as it means like getting in the weeds and like, you know, actually building the brand and business, like, oh, I like this other idea though, over here that I have. <laughs> totally. And it's, it is the strength and the weakness of the founder mindset, which is, once you've got something, I think the fine founder mindset can get distracted and that may or may not lead to a next spark, but often can take you away from this raging inferno that is pending if you just ignited it. Um, and so, you know, along the way, we probably looked for too many new sparks, but in fact, we had this gorgeous fire burning. And I think that's the changes, you know, the changes we've made most recently is just to really nurture this, uh, this inferno that we have, as opposed to trying to start a bunch of new sparks. What would you say are the the qualities that make up, you know, someone who's really good at, you know, having ideas and being more of like an AJ and, and passing off these ideas to people who can execute or hiring those people in house to build it out versus the the business operator and builder who takes that idea and runs with it and, and creates that wildfire? Like what are the different maybe personality traits or skill sets? that you think are really relevant for those two different types of personalities? So AJ's our little Elon Musk. I mean, he, he, he has all the traits of Elon. And so what Elon Musk did not invent electric cars. He did not invent rocket ships, but what he has, what AJ has is this fearlessness, just fearlessness to go for it. And, and, and when it doesn't work, doesn't care. He just goes after it again. And and then fortunately, uh, in, in AJ's case, he had some success. So that bred confidence, right? So it's one thing to be fearless and continuously fail. With a growth mindset, you'd get over it. But I think after a while, you get a little frustrated. He had a taste of success to realize that, no, he's, his instincts are right. So I think the, the startup cat has that gusto, that, that, that just the fearlessness to say, I'm just going to go for it. I think the operator is a little bit more, uh, probably has a little bit more discipline, which is, is, again, that's not disparaging on the founder, but I think it's the idea of hunting with a scope versus hunting with a shotgun. And, you know, the founder is, can sometimes be a squirrel hunter because they're just constantly trying to ignite sparks. And I think the operator is a little bit more hunting with a scope. So I, I think those are the two complementary skill sets. What's great about AJ and John and I is we have this gorgeous trifecta. AJ is our Elon Musk, just relentless. John is our food inventor. 
um, but still has that entrepreneurial bent. And then I'm the operator who loves building teams and making people better. We're, we're very lucky to have this, this trifecta. And it only works because it works. And what I mean by that is if the three of us hated each other or even just a little, there's no chance this works because we're so different. I feel like there's been a lot of these startup studios kind of popping up where it's like this idea generator type of thing. You come in there for like six weeks, you you vet a bunch of different ideas and then you run off with, you know, whatever idea is the most validated and the founder wants to run with it. Or they bring in a CEO, They you know, there's maybe pre-vetted ideas that they want to hire CEOs around to come in build and take the business. There's a lot of things going on with this like super early stage idea, um, you know, hiring business operators. It's super interesting. I think you're the first on the show that has kind of come in after nine months of launching to be CEO of, you know, a startup. I'm curious. So what have you, what were some of the first things you did? You mentioned the pricing hierarchy, how many people were there before and, and how big is the team now after two years that you've been there? Probably a dozen at that point, and we are encroaching 60 now. So we've grown, we've grown nicely over that period. I'm curious by nature. So I think the first thing I tried to do was to understand why we had been successful. Like what was it that got us to that stature? But it didn't take too long to get to that. You know, you, it's always about the consumer. And in our case, we have amazing stuff. And, uh, and so we were, you know, I was, it didn't take me long to figure out what was the most important asset here. And then it was just bringing a couple of fundamentals. One of the things was what business do we want to be? And at that point, we were exploring all kinds of categories and possibilities. And um, over time, reined in to say, look, we want to be the category leader in no sugar snacking. Um, and so there's a couple key insights there, snacking and no sugar. We, we could have gone in a bunch of different directions, but I think the role that I played early on was just to kind of get us focused on what's our blueprint here? You know, where, where are we going, but not wooden headed, you know, still being agile enough. And that was the strength of having AJ and John around to say, Hey, yeah, I hear you intellectually. That makes sense. We're also going to try this. Some of those things worked and some of them didn't. What qualities do you think make a great CEO, which I know can vary depending on the size of the business, but kind of looking back maybe over the past two and a half years, like what, what do you think are some of those key traits for successful CEOs? I think the, the common element, and I'll see if I can distinguish between big co and, and startup, but I think the common element is there has to be some semblance of a roadmap. The team needs to know what the leader believes and they need to know where they're going and why. And so that was one of the things that we spent some time on early, which is what are the what are the four or five key things you've got to know about this business to understand why we're going in said direction? And so we laid out what those key assumptions or facts were up front. And uh, we called the whole crew together in January of 2020 and said, look, this is, this is, this is what you got to know about us to know why we're going to go do what we do. And therefore, if you do that well, what we're going to go do is, is very obvious. So point one is, the leader has to know what they believe. They have to know, they need to be able to convey the direction that they're going. I think the difference between startup and Fortune 200 is what happens next. What happens next in Fortune 200 is you assemble a bunch of teams, you nurture talent, and you, 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 you hope that they come back with all kinds of great answers and, and actions. 
In this world, you roll up your sleeves, you pick up the phone and you figure out what, you know, how you get those five things in place. And then you start recruiting the talent to take over at that point. You know, the, the difference in this world versus my old world is the emphasis on finding and keeping talent is extraordinarily high uh, and much harder. It's very easy in Fortune 200s just to recruit on the strength of your logo. In this case, you've got to convince people of the mission. You know, we're on a mission to drive 10 million pounds of sugar out of the American diet by 2025. And, and it's an important mission for us. And everyone who comes in needs to subscribe to why, why does that matter? And so I think that's where the, the once you've declared what you believe and where you're going, that's where I think the two paths take two different, two different routes. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. With the rising costs of acquiring new customers, retention is a key focus for DDC brands. And creating outstanding customer experiences shouldn't be costly or a burden for your customer support team. This is exactly why Gorgeous is so great. They centralize all of your customer communications into one beautiful dashboard, personalizing each experience along the way, which not only helps you retain your customers, but also saves you time and increases revenue. Gorgeous works with over 9,000 brands, including Princess Polly, Olipop, and Boxu. So if you'd like to be one of them, head on over to Gorgeous.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast to get two months free. That's two months free of Gorgeous when you head over to Gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user-generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon 38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. Speaking of the product, you guys have some funny logos or um, sayings. You have like high and awesome, not sugar. I saw the Ryan Reynolds commercial that you guys did on YouTube and it's cancel sugar, not cookies. These are hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Well, so thank you because it's, this is a, we, we've been, this brand is sassy, right? It doesn't take itself too seriously. And a lot of folks in our space, our space defined as better for you food, but even precisely in the mission of driving sugar out, it's a movement. But for us, it's not political. Like it, 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 we're trying to give consumers an option, give them a choice, but we don't take ourselves too seriously as individuals or as a brand. And um, you know, Ryan is, uh, is an investor in the, in the business and, and uh, we partnered on some stuff early on. And of course, his personality just fit this brand perfectly because, you know, you know, I don't think anyone takes himself less seriously as a compliment uh, than than Ryan Reynolds. So yeah, we uh, we strive hard to not take ourselves too seriously. Seems like a pretty cool guy and definitely great fit. It seems from like a personality perspective. How did you find Ryan? Like, how does how does a startup company try to seek investment from 
awesome people like Ryan. You know, we are lucky to have bootstrapped this thing together for the most part. And but we did have one institutional investor who we brought on not for his check, but for his Rolodex and what he knew. And in this case, part of his Rolodex included uh, Maximum Effort, which was the agency we partnered with. And and Ryan liked the stuff. And Ryan is a David versus Goliath kind of guy. And he gen- genuinely believes in the mission of taking sugar out of the American diet. So it kind of came together pretty elegantly. So I think I told you before we hopped on that I already, I literally finished an entire bag of these Heike mini chocolate chip cookies. And I'm like, wow, I, I feel so good about myself. I mean, the whole container is what, six grams of protein, not too shabby. You know, I wouldn't get that from another, any other cookies. The one ingredient that I think is really interesting. And I'm like, what is that? I hope it's okay. Since there's no sugar, really, what is the E word on the back here? I'm sure <laughs> most people know what this is, but I don't. Um, no. So can you explain what, because there's 18 grams of this. How do you pronounce it? Erythritol. Irith- yeah. Erythritol. Erythritol. Yeah. 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 What it, is it, that? Um, it is so so we use a blend of natural sweeteners, which is erythritol, monk fruit, and stevia. And the magic that John brings to this is the blending of them. If you use too much of any one of them, you can get what's called a cooling effect. But if you blend them just right, um, you can you can overcome that. And so they're just naturally occurring sweeteners, but their sweetness levels are like multiples of tens to to sugar and and most importantly and this is the most important thing they have no impact on your blood glucose level there are some artificial and and sweet you know other sweeteners out there that will jack up your blood sugar levels you know in a similar way to sugar to which i'd say what's the point like if the if you're not actually having a physical impact on your glucose levels then then why bother not eating sugar and so um, we're pretty it's pretty important to us to make sure that we are actually you know, having the physical impact that the promise of no sugar provides. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're pretty low calorie, you know, cookies and that's probably why, right. Is this, this is pretty important ingredient you guys have here or blend. And and the other piece of it is, is almond flour. I mean, you know, so, you know, how do you make a cookie without, without gluten and sugar and and you use a very expensive flours in this case, almond flour, you know, two thirds of our ingredients are, is almond flour and these very expensive natural sweeteners. So, and it's, and, and it's hard to make, you know, again, you need gluten and sugar to hold baked goods together. And our team has figured out a way to, to do it otherwise. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Almond flour is probably a little tough to work with. <laughs> Very tricky to work with. Yeah. But, but again, that's the power of, of our team. They've figured that one out. But it tastes great. And hence the protein level. You there you it. go. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And we don't celebrate that enough. I mean, we, you know, to your point, um, there's, there's, you know, six, seven grams of protein and just in that little bag. So, so we'll, we, we may start elevating that a little bit. I definitely thought, I mean, cause it's not on the front of the bag. It says gluten-free. So I'm like, okay, check husband can have it. But I didn't even think of the protein until I was looking. I'm like, how do they have no sugar in here? Like, what's the whole thing here? What's this E word? And then I was like looking right below. I'm like protein, Jesus, that's actually not, that's a pretty, yeah. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, no. So mark my words in the net, in the next few months, we will have it on the front of pack. And when you see it, you can say, I did that. So I we'll, love that. that You're going to have to email me. <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> that's funny. User feedback. Well, via and, and, and what I love about that is that's a turn right decision, right? So, all right, let's yeah, just do that. And totally. Not, <laughs> Straight to the decision maker right now, right yeah. here. <laughs> Amazing. 
So what's, what's maybe one of the biggest things you've learned about being a CEO? It, it is all, it is all about the people. It's theoretical, and, but it is all about the people. And that's true in both environments I've led in. The difference between startup and Fortune 200 is you can hide in a big company, right? Both as the CEO and as the individuals. As a CEO, you can hide behind all kinds of great people who make you look great. And as individuals, you can just hide because there's so many people around. So it's very hard to distinguish who really is a great leader in some of those environments. And unfortunately, in some cases, the leaders that progress may be the ones who are just the most effective at navigating organizational behavior as opposed to the great leaders. In the startup world, there's no hiding, both as the leader, but also you know, in your ability to make individuals better because there aren't that many to raise this whole boat. It's also much harder to retain talent, especially now, which everyone is dealing with, but you better have a strong mission and vision that people buy into because likely you're not paying, you know, gobs of money like you can make in big companies. And there certainly aren't a lot of stock options. So, I, but it, it's always about the talent and, and the people, regardless of the context. That's interesting. I'm just thinking through, yes, it's about the mission and alignment. And it's not so much about, I guess, following you as the leader. It's really following the mission of the entire business. What are some things that you do to motivate your team? Keep them motivated, keep them happy. I tell you, to be honest, Lee, it's so hard right now. This is the hardest period to lead that I've ever experienced, but not because of startup, but because of remote um, you know, I'm, I'm a servant leader, so I need to make a connection with my people. Um, I never think I'm the smartest person in the room because I've never been that. And I find it very difficult to do it from afar. Our head office is in Orlando. I live in Minneapolis. So that exasperates it, but only a little, because the truth is, if the office was in Minneapolis, you know, up until recently, we still wouldn't have all been together in person. So I think it's very hard to make a connection at this moment. Now, it's not impossible. What's interesting right now is the connection is a little bit more authentic because you are literally in each other's living rooms because of technology. So I think it's a yin and a yang, but I do think in this moment in time as leaders, especially when we get into a hybrid universe, being deliberate and making a connection with people, both their head and their heart, I think that's the key, especially on the servant side. If you're a command and control leader, it's probably less important because you're just going to say something, dictate something and expect people to come back yesterday with the answer. What do you think is something most people don't know about building a business or leading a, a startup? It, well, it depends on how you define most people. I think the following everybody probably listening to your show knows because it's a community of startup leaders. What I think the the population doesn't appreciate is how nice edge and razor's edge the idea of building a business is. It's existential every day, um, whether it be making payroll, whether it be raising capital, is this going to work? This notion of the existential nature of the, of the work is so different than the majority of the population who gets up and goes to work each day. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but I don't think, I think about my old colleagues. I don't, that's something they don't appreciate. The razor's edge existential nature of the, of the existence. Yeah. Razor's edge. Yes. Because it, it's like, it's very, you mean like every day is something big can happen, something, and it could be good or bad. 
either way, it's detrimental in some way. Or explode in a a good way. And it's thrilling and terrifying in the very same breath. Yeah. And I don't think it's really cut out for everybody. I think that, you know, I think the idea of starting a business or building one is a lot more interesting and sparks curiosity than actually doing it for a lot of people. It takes a lot of, and what would you think it takes to have to deal with the razor edge every day? Well, it comes back to Dr. Dweck's work around growth mindset, right? You have to be comfortable that you're not going to get it right every day. In fact, you're going to get it right. You're going to get it wrong a lot. One of our core values is make mistakes, learn, move on. And the ability to move on, I think is key. Sorry, you just said make mistakes. And I'm curious, what's one of the biggest mistakes that you've made that you've had to move on from? And what did you do to maybe help yourself move on from it if you needed that? As a company, I think we, when we knew we had something, which is this, you know, taking sugar out of snacks, especially in the cookie space, really nurturing it and staying on that rock. I think it's pretty, pretty normal for a founder led involved business in this case to continue to chase the next spark. And we did that and we wasted an awful lot of resources and, and, uh, and time and energy when we had this beautiful thing already glowing. And so I think that's as a company, probably one of the mistakes As I reflect on your question personally, difficulty of making connections with the team remote Uh, as I said earlier, is really difficult. And I think you have to find a way to overcome that technical glitch, which is not being in person. And um, when you have to make hard decisions, you have to make, you have to have the trust of everybody on the team. Like so many leaders, I probably used COVID and remote as an excuse to not still invest in the one-to-one relationship that you must have, especially in this, in this universe. And so when you have to make hard decisions, I think it's hard. It, it, it takes the organization longer to absorb them because, because you, you, uh, you haven't formed that, you haven't nurtured that one-on-one or at least group trust that is so important. And what advice do you have for building trust with a one-on-one with your team? Because I think a lot of people have remote teams now, right? And, and a lot of entrepreneurs might be thinking, hmm, yeah, I maybe need to build some more trust what should I do to do that? Does that mean spending an hour on zoom with them every week over cocktails or something, you know, like, what does it look like? What does building trust look like? Well, so my core belief is that leadership is a human endeavor. And I think people who struggle with it think it's far more rational than relational. And, and so, you know, so then you say, well, so if you use that as your foundation, how do you build trust with another human being? And the answer is always be vulnerable, like really be vulnerable and, and get to know where someone came from, what makes them tick past, get past the, what did you do this weekend? You know, my favorite leadership team, team building work are ones where you really get to someone's soul and heart. You know, I kicked off a board meeting recently. And one of my favorite questions I love asking is, what was the first concert you went to? And what's the last concert you went to? Because I think music is a great glimpse into our soul. And, um, and so I got feedback afterwards saying, you know, I've never, I've never been in a board meeting that started with that question. And, and in, 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 in the same vein, I've gotten related feedback to say, boy, this board is really connected to each other. Those are very related 
you know, that's a that's not a coincidence. Right. And so I think vulnerability is the key to building a human relationship. And I think that's true in leadership. Now, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I'm an introvert, so technically it should make me uncomfortable. But but I know it's a really powerful tool. It's interesting that you're you call yourself an introvert. I think to most people, CEOs tend to be extroverts. Yeah, well, so the very so if you think about the definition, you know, introversion, extroversion is where do you draw your strength, right? Where do you draw your energy? And so I draw my energy, you know, in small groups, you know, one or two good friends with a pitcher of beer and chicken wings is my idea of a great night versus going to a big dance club and having a hundred people that I don't really care about. And so the true definition is just where do you draw your strength and energy? Now, I'm what Myers-Briggs would call an expressive introvert. So I'm comfortable kind of expressing a point of view uh, and kind of putting myself out there, but I, I understand that notion. I reject it because introversion is just simply a matter of where do you draw your strength from. And now when you do have to put yourself out there, whether it be at a company meeting or a monthly town hall, an introvert needs to recognize that they have to go to a silent corner and recharge themselves, um, whereas an extrovert can just stay out there the whole time. So there are some things that I think introverts need to do, but that's just part of the, the muscle of knowing who you are. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, growing or just building a business obviously requires a ton of professional and personal growth. How do you feel like you've grown over the past two and a half years with High Key as a leader? Very early on, for some reason, I developed a very um, heightened sense of curiosity for leadership. Very early, I started writing just learnings, random learnings, and I started typing it into a Word document that the document's called learning.doc now. And it's like 25 pages of hundreds of bullet points that I've written for the last 20 plus years to myself. And so I think inherently that curiosity has helped me at each stage, regardless of whether it was big company or small company. In this stage, I think I've always been aware that there's a lot that I don't know. And I'm lucky that um, I'm surrounded by, you know, a, a couple of cats who as I said earlier, we have this gorgeous trifecta. We're wired so differently. And so I'm very cognizant to listen to those who have done it before, done something differently than me. And so I just think being curious and listening, you know, we've got two ears and one mouth, that old adage that your parents told you in leadership, I think that's even more important. So I think that has served me not just in this segment of my career, but probably throughout. In this learnings.doc, all these learnings, are they published somewhere for? for uh, so someone asked me that question recently, and I, sh- I would love to someday. I mean, but, but there's a little bit, I'll have to get, I'll have to develop enough of an ego to say that that might actually be publishable because many of them are very personal. But what I have done over the years is I've organized them in a way that kind of by topic. And I, it's a gift. Every six months or so, I'll go back to the document and just check back in. And every time I see something new or I see something again from a fresh set of eyes, which effectively is new. So it is the biggest gift I've ever given myself was just tracking. And in the key, of course, like everything else is you got to write it down. And I, I, you know, in, in the early days of my career on the piece of paper I had in the conference room, I'd write an L with a circle and I'd capture whatever I noticed. Usually what I noticed somebody doing well and better if I see someone doing something not well. And, uh, and then at the end of the day, I'd go back to the dock and I'd, I'd just type it and then close it. 
And then over time I organized it and, and it's a pretty nerdy thing to do, but um, boy, it was a, it was a pretty cool gift to give myself. We'll have, I would love to take a look at that and see how we can publish some of that on, on the Stairway to CEO blog so we can get some great leadership insights and advice. Well, I'm sure there's I, a lot I, of I don't want to oversell the, oversell the magnitude of the insights, but, but like everything else, it's usually the most basic, basic things that we've got to stay, stay close to. Absolutely. Well, so before we wrap up, um, any final advice for aspiring CEOs out there tuning in? And also, what's next for Haiki? You know, the biggest advice I'd have is bet on yourself. Um, and maybe more for the less the CEO and more just the uh, you know, aspiring entrepreneur or someone like me who was in an environment where they, they had some success, but they wondered, right? They wondered, is there something else that I could do? Am I, for me, it was the idea of, of not reaching my fullest potential or at least exploring the other avenue was paramount. And so I would say bet on yourself. And if it makes you really uncomfortable, cover the downside but still place the bet. And then, you know, your risk tolerance will determine, you know, what cover the downside looks like. But, but there comes a time for me, I coined this term uh, project Timberlake when I was, when I was with the big company, I said, look, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of Justin Timberlake's music. He seems like a nice guy, but, but I really respect that he left the band at its peak and bet on himself. Right. And became a solo artist. Of course, we know how that went. And, and so, so I coined this expression probably 14 or 15 years into my career. And I talk about it with my buddies, Project Timberlake, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet on myself. I'm going to leave the band. I'm going solo. I didn't know what that meant. But then I discovered entrepreneurism as a concept when I was in Australia. And I thought, oh, it's not Project Timberlake. It's Project Jay-Z. You want to own the record label. Like that's where the real glory comes. And so, um, and so there comes a time when you've got to place the bet. And um, if you need the comfort of, of covering the downside, then do that. As it relates to what's next for high key, gosh, we are early innings and um, you know, we're the fastest turning better for your cookie in the US and retail. We're available nationally at most major retailers and we're taking sugar out of the American diet. And so it's, uh, it doesn't get better than that. And yet we've, we're probably in the second inning. So we've got a, a, lot, more, a lot more runway to, to glide down. Well, it's awesome to see and congrats on all the progress that you guys have been making being, you know, kind of number one over there on Amazon. That's a big deal. And uh, yeah, congrats so much. And uh, looking forward to seeing where you take high key. You're just in the very beginning of the journey. So I'm excited to see phase four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten play out. You and me both. I'm, uh, it's going to be a fun ride and uh, I will send you uh, the packaging when we uh, bring protein to the front in some way, we'll call that project Lee. I get royalties, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, thank you so much again for your time. Appreciate you joining me on the show. Thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.